Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 95. Like, there's not such a big difference between a stand-up comic and a preacher, because you're on stage trying to convince people to agree with your ideas. Cameron Esposito is a Los Angeles-based stand-up comic, actor, and writer. She's appeared on NBC, CBS, Comedy Central, a ton of other places, <laughs> in indie films featured at the Sundance and South by Southwest Film Festivals, in big-budget features for nationwide release, and at comedy and music festivals worldwide. She's the host of the popular podcast Query with Cameron Esposito, which features interviews with LGBTQ luminaries, including the likes of Roxanne Gay, Trixie Mattel, Evan Rachel Wood, and Tegan and Sarah Quinn. Cameron is also the co-creator and co-star of the TV series Take My Wife, which garnered rave reviews from the New York Times, Vanity Fair, Vulture, and IndieWire, and is now available on Stars. Her most recent comedy special, Rape Jokes, raised almost $100,000 for Rain, the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. Cameron just released her first book, Save Yourself, a memoir that tackles sexuality, gender, and equality, and how her Catholic upbringing prepared her for a career as an outspoken lesbian comedian in ways that the Pope could have never imagined. (laughs) I am... (laughs) I know I say this every week. I am so excited to have Cameron on the show today. Cameron has been one like when Twitter has happened and people and I'm like, who should I who should I have on the show? Cameron has come up again and again over the past few years. And I have been like, there's literally no way that could ever happen. (laughs) But here it is today happening. And I, I am just I'm just thrilled Before we dive into the show, just wanted to do a quick check-in with y'all. I mean, I know this is a pretty one-sided check-in. See how you're doing. I I know we're in the midst of a very strange, hard, stressful, anxiety-producing time. I know that I have felt my anxiety levels rise and rise and rise over the last few weeks and know that much of us are feeling the weight of, of that collective anxiety. And I also know how very tired of everyone's kind of hot takes on the COVID-19 thing is. So so I'm not here with a hot take or, or even advice, but simply to say, we're here. We're in this. We're taking it day by day. And know that I am I'm mindful of each of you in the best of my ability to be mindful of each of you who listen to this show. And I want to say thank you for joining me for these next few minutes. Hopefully it can be not an escape, but but a way of, of engaging the world in, in maybe a little bit of a different way than, than we have been. So with that said, let's just go ahead and dive in. Cameron, hi, welcome. Hey, Matthias. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. <laughs> it's really good to have you on the show today. Thanks for... Thanks for joining in this strange, odd time. (laughs) So we'll start with the question that I ask everyone. How do you identify? And then how would you say that faith helped form that identity? You know, I'm going to say you even gave me a preview that this would be the opening question. I filed in my mind that this would be the opening question. (laughs) And... I feel like I'm like, this question is impossible to answer. Um, Let me say, how do I identify? I guess I identify as a queer person, as a lesbian, as a stand-up comic. I guess I identify as a woman. I mean, politically, I identify as a woman. 
And how has faith helped form that identity? I guess in the way that I did not get positive or helpful information about any of that <laughs> growing up super Catholic. Yeah, so so almost as if your your identity was formed kind of in the in the negative, right? In the negative spaces of of not having any of this information accessible. Does that sound right? Is that kind of what you're saying? Or? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. I also think it's like a fought for set of, I guess it was in the negative spaces, but also the good news is that I had to figure so much out that I, and not that I'm like, and now I'm, you know, done and I've figured it all out, but more so um, I think a lot about people who were raised as Catholic as I was and then didn't have the experience of realizing they were queer or something like that, you know, and so therefore didn't necessarily get the opportunity to fight to figure out who they are. Does that make sense? I think so. Like, almost as a sense of realizing I was queer. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but but even in your book, I feel like this kind of comes through. Like realizing that I was queer helped me ask the right questions or help me ask questions help me realize all of these other things yes i think that's true i consider i mean this is like very strong language but i really do consider the type of catholicism that i was raised with and also kind of all catholicism you know to be as cult like as any other faith that is also impacted by white supremacy and colonialism and everything else that's going on and patriarchy and, and, you know, sex abuse, the whole gamut of, of what is really happening in the church. So it's that confusing space between the real human wisdom that any faith offers, you know, so many faiths have so much to teach about what we're doing here because there it's humans pondering that question. Um, but then the complexity of the, you know, the corporation or the machine that's built around that. I just, I do think that I had an enormous privilege in in getting to ask questions about everything else. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, walk us through, like, I mean, so you grew up, like, super Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> like, not even a little bit Catholic, like, like super, super Catholic. And, and I mean, your, your new book, your memoir kind of walks through that process of, of growing up and then discovering that you were queer in college. Um, and everything that happened in between. I mean, that that's compressing a whole lot, but kind of walk us through that. Like, how was it growing up so Catholic and then realizing like, holy shit, like, <laughs> I'm gay. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I it really bears mentioning that the name of the book is Save Yourself, and it's being released right now. I just feel like I can't believe that that's true. I just can't, can't believe that the book is called Save Yourself. So that's just a that's just a side. <laughs> that's just an aside. But you know, I again, I feel like for a lot of reasons, Catholicism is viewed as this pretty mainstream, pretty low-key version of religious extremism, maybe because Christianity is viewed as so mundane in the United States. And then also the, you know, the the holidays that we celebrate, you can find a, an Easter, like a chocolate Easter bunny at Walgreens, you know, so it just feels very woven into the fabric. Also, Catholic universities have really strong 
sports programs, you know, football or basketball. And so I, I think we just get used to seeing Catholicism all around us. You know, at least I have seen them like from within it. So I don't know what it would, what, if this is true for people that were outside of it, but I, that's what I imagine is true. And then also, you know, Catholics did such a good job of like stealing or appropriating really good land and investing in art. So, you know, we're like in the museums and we have the really beautiful churches that are visible in so many cities that you would visit. And so for me, it, it really was like, I was raised, so I didn't know anybody that wasn't Catholic. You know, my aunt had been a nun and then left the convent and went and started a family. Um, my dad and my aunt had been adopted through Catholic Charities, which is a faith-based social services organization. So like even the services, you know, were provided by folks who had this very strict Catholic bent. And so really like everything around me seemed to be the same message, which is about actual literal hell and, you know, saving yourself for marriage and about gay people being either non-existent, like that it was fake, that people were just sinning knowingly, or that these were people who were being tried by God with these urges and that, that celibacy should be the answer. Because in Catholicism, the sin is not the inclination, it's the action. So, I mean, that's why that's why there's a connection between, say, for instance, queerness and the priesthood. <laughs> because if you're a celibate dude, then you're actually fine. You're actually, you know, doing things okay. I mean, I know that's a really long answer. So how did it feel? Like, I think it felt like, I think it felt so confusing because I really, it really was like, I, you know, I say the same thing about for instance, something like feminism, you know, like I never took a women's studies class in my life and I did not grow up in a faith where women are treated equally at all. We can't be priests. We're supposed to be vessels for childbirth. And then in college, I had these thoughts like, what if men and women are equal? You know, like, and it, and it felt like I was, I, I had this radical set of views where I, w I was like, I think I just created this, you know, like, <laughs> like given no other information, I was just like, uh -huh. I have this idea and like, I'm going to try to bring it to the world. You know, that's what it felt like is that I was inventing queer theory, you know, like, like as if nobody had ever been gay before. And I was just like, me, I'm actually gay. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. And I think like that, that's so interesting that you say that because I think, I mean, so I grew up like super evangelical, so different, but similar, I think in some of like the, the strictness and the, the religiosity. And I similarly started coming out in college and that I've, I've never had someone like quite mention that sense though, of like, I felt like I was inventing this all for myself and then it was going to be my job to go, or I wanted to go and, share this with the world like this brand new thing not realizing like there's a whole generation there's a whole many generations of folks who have been doing this work that we just were never allowed to access who, who were kind of blocked from it. so uh, what was it like then i mean i, I want to talk about your college experience but but i'm curious so like so you're realizing oh i'm inventing queer theory what was it like to start discovering that you were a part of a world that you didn't even realize was out there. I think that's why I still have a really strong interest in queer media and in 
our history. And that's why I have a podcast that's called Query, where I interview queer folks, is that I am like endlessly fascinated by other people's experience because it felt like, yeah, it was massively impactful. I used to go, this is in the book too, but I, my first girlfriend and I, you know, we were at Boston College, which was a Catholic university where at the time you were not encouraged to come out. In fact, the official policy was that it was not covered by the non-discrimination policy, homosexuality. So like, though I never saw this happen, the atmosphere, and this was like spoken, you know, was that gay students and faculty could be removed from the university. And so we used to take the train, you know, this through Boston to Somerville. It's like essentially from one end of a train line to the other end of a different train line. And we would go to this coffee shop that was called Diesel Cafe. It would take us like an hour and a half to get there. It was queer owned. And some of the baristas would have like, you know, fucked up haircuts or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and we would go walk in. We wouldn't even order anything. We would just like walk in and like look at the people in there just to sort of experience what it could be like. Or, you know, I was like lurking in the L word chat forums because <laughs> because it was I just had such a an interest in queerness but it still felt very like unapproachable to me yeah I mean so so you describe in the book kind of so you so you're you're at Boston College you are going to mass waking up early going to mass <laughs> every morning you're doing kind of all of the, this very religious stuff that you deeply believe in and you talk a lot about this like social justice cool Jesus, <laughs> like, stuff that you were a part of, which is which is something that I feel like, I mean, I feel like a lot, a lot of folks, I, I may be wrong on this, but a lot of folks, like, when we start realizing, like, oh, there's something different about me, but I still kind of want to hold on to this faith, like, how do I do that? And, and we discover this kind of social justice Jesus, cool Jesus that's, you know, different, what was that like? I mean, was it a difference or were you raised with that kind of social justice lens? Like, tell me about that. Well, I feel like as an evangelical, I mean, I don't know exactly you could answer this question, um, but obviously I also saw, I had friends in evangelical communities and I think this is almost overlapping with like that sense of Jesus. <laughs> like I had a lot of friends who, I, you know, who were like, they taught surfing, but for Jesus, or they like were in bands, but for Jesus, or they, whatever it was, like the specificity of that sort of like younger, hipper outreach. Did you grow up around that type of evangelical community? Yes and no. I was aware of it. I, I My parents were pretty fundamentalist. So it was like there was an awareness that that was out there. And those were the cool kids. Yeah, it's like that. It's like where the pastor is named like pastor, you know, whatever, GW or something like some like really <laughs> totally <laughs> with like gelled hair. <laughs> like I definitely had friends who were in that scene because there's some overlap between that and this part of Catholicism. The difference being that like there aren't usually young gelled hair, you know, folks who are married or whatever because priests are unmarried. And, and so that just kind of, I think that changes the dynamic a lot. Like a priest is never somebody that you're supposed to be able to one-to-one -one relate to. That being said, there was a there was a priest at my at my childhood school growing up who like played basketball, you know, like that whole thing where you're like, what, you know. <laughs> um, but so I did have this basketball playing priest. Or then when I was in high school, I was sort of introduced to there's a part of Catholicism that is influenced by this thinking that's called liberation theology, 
that is about actually, you know, creating like political unrest or, you know, breaking the chains around the poor in a literal way. So it's not about like praying that the future in an afterlife will be better. You know, it's not about like trials creating joy in heaven. It really is about like overthrowing South and Central American governments. And there were priests involved in actual um, political direct action. And that's the stuff that I first, and nuns too, and that's the stuff that I first felt if my faith had previously been about lessons or whatever, then those were the, the acts that felt like they made the most sense to me. I mean, of course, by the way, also, none of that happens in the U.S. Like, it's it's all about people of color. Actually, that's not totally true. There is there is a direct action that happens here, but it's about a military school that trains paramilitary forces from South and Central America. And folks, like tens and thousands of Catholics go and protest at this military school. It's in Georgia. I went to that. But, you know, nobody's like asking the federal government to take care of our people better. It's all this very like outside colonialist. So there was a moment though where that kind of started falling apart for you, right? Like I think it was when the Boston Globe, the the sexual abuse scandal broke. I, I think in the book, that's kind of where you say like, this is when things started falling apart. Tell me about that. Yeah. So the movie Spotlight is based on this time in, it must've been 2000 to 2003 when bunches of stories like i think there were i think there were hundreds of stories about like published in the boston globe about the archdiocese of boston which is technically the boss of the school that i was at hiding sexual abuse in priests so like getting report upon report and then moving that priest to a different parish as opposed to turning that police that or turning that priest over to some sort of authority or blocking them from direct interaction with parishioners. It was like this massive game of shuffle where they were just moving folks around so that allegations didn't stick. That was the front page of the Boston Globe, which is like the paper that would be on campus. So I'd be reading the Boston Globe while I went to my classes and I was a theology major. And there is this moment that I remember where I was, you know, it's around that same time. And I went to a talk that was partially a debate between other folks in my program. So it was like teens, you know, we were like 20 or 19 or whatever. There was a a young dude who was a theology major who I saw like, you know, waxing philosophically about why women will never be able to be priests, like because they're not actually, you know, they're created from man and from Adam's rib and they're not, they can't stand in for God. And it's, I'm listening to like a, you know, 20 year old person say this while reading what men in the church were actually doing. And, you know, my thought was just, how could this be where your mind's at right now? Like, how how is your reaction to these stories that, like, we should keep going? You know, that business as usual is working. What was that like for you? I remember being angry. I also, I, like, wrote an op-ed for the school paper. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> 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 that I found a little while ago again. And it's, you know, it's about, like, the op-ed is about missing the Catholic message, which I interpreted as being that we're, that equality is the most important lesson in the Bible. And I mean, what a sweetheart, just like trying to change hearts and minds. You know, I did not want to go quietly 
into that good night or whatever. I was like trying to stay and fight. I mean, I actually lived in Rome after that and studied theology in Rome after that experience. So it didn't, you know, it didn't create an immediate set of, I think for me, the place that it started was, was this feeling of like wanting to wake everyone else around me up. But then eventually I just found other communities and realized that not everybody, not everybody actually already ascribes to this. There are places I can go that are maybe safe for me. And I don't always have to be the canary in the coal mine. Like I can, I can take care of myself first. That's a big shift from, I have to be the one to fix this to, I can go other places and maybe find care, goodness, love, belonging, just in a, in a different place, in a place where I'm actually cared for, loved, where I actually belong. Yeah, it is a big shift. I mean, I don't think I've ever fully shifted out of that first one. I think I've just found different places to rest. Like, there's not such a big difference between a stand-up comic and a preacher, because you're on stage trying to convince people to agree with your ideas. And I do think I still have a desire to like get folks on the same page that I'm on. It's just that in my, like, say, offstage life or in my life, you know, outside of the church, it's not then, like at the time it was like fighting and then I go home and fight, you know? And so now it's more so like I, I still feel some responsibility to try to like bring folks along with me, but I, that's not my primary community or folks who need to like change or, or have their minds broadened or whatever. There's something subtle but like really radical about that. I mean, it's, it's interesting that your book is called Save Yourself because in some ways, like that's a saving of yourself. My mind just went to sex there for a second, but like... <laughs> like <laughs> oh, I mean, that's meant to be. Right. That's double entendre is very meant. Totally. <laughs> and, and, I'm not, and I'm not sure that we necessarily need to like go into kind of how, how radical that, that choice was that you made to like... I don't know, maybe, like, would you call that a radical choice or was that something that just kind of evolved as you continued to maybe see what was what was actually happening in, in the world that you'd grown up with versus the world that you were kind of jumping into? You know, I'm sure, like, a lot of queer folks can relate to this. I, I mean, I don't think that there will ever be a point in my life where I feel fully safe. Hi, it's me. I'm, I'm interrupting. If you've been listening to Queerology for a while, you know it's entirely listener-supported, meaning it doesn't happen without your support. So I wanted to let you know about a brand new thing we're doing over here at Queerology as a thank you. The Queerology Active Listeners Facebook group. To become an active listener, all you need to do is make a pledge on Patreon. Any amount, $4, $16, $25, $50, it doesn't matter. It will get you into the Facebook group. We're just getting it started. It's already been a lot of fun. Just head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Matthias Roberts to make a pledge and you'll get basically immediate access to that Facebook group. And help me keep bringing incredible interviews like this one with Cameron straight to your ears. Maybe not straight. So if you want to hang out with other Queerology listeners, you know what to do. Patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. Let's get back to Cameron. I live in Los Angeles where it is fairly normalized to be a queer person, where it's fairly normalized to have like my sort of haircut or this sort of clothes I wear. Like I moved into a neighborhood, you know, where it's fairly normalized. I still get occasionally yelled at on the street, or I still feel sometimes in it when I do my job now, 
when I walk out as a comic, I can, you know, you can tell <laughs> when people don't want to hear from you because of how you may look or because of um, the fact that you're not offering what they want, like specifically men, you know, I can still see it in men's faces when they're like, this isn't somebody for us to try to sleep with. So like, how are we supposed to prioritize this person? I can still, I still have those experiences. And I also, you know, was lucky enough to get to make a bunch of choices that could maybe be safer. So I just think it's, you know, I think like not having any awareness that there was a community, then sort of beginning by studying the community or visiting the community and eventually moving into a space where I also so infrequently have to come out to people because I've, you know, I look like a queer person, but also I'm like kind of famously gay. You know, like I literally chose a job where I come out all the time because I found it exhausting to come out in little ways. You know, there's so much, there's such a burden on queer folks to constantly come out. So I did the, I think I did a pretty good job of addressing like some of the the things that could be addressed. And, you know, like that doesn't, doesn't mean I'm ever like safe or comfortable, but, um, but I made the changes that I could based on the getting further and further information. That's part of the reason that like, that writing a book like this, specifically because it speaks to the religious to folks who are raised in religious communities. I when I talk to straight people, they think that the story that's in this book is like from the distant past. And I'm like, well not only are the events in this, I mean the events in in Save Yourself are like from the 2000s, but I actually assume that folks from religious communities are still having these experiences and not that this is the past, which is very true, right? Like I mean I, and I think it's it's that that surprise that some straight folks have when they hear that, like, it is so interesting because I think we, we as queer folk know in our very bones, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is still happening everywhere. Absolutely. I mean, there's a direct connection between, say, for instance, like religious fervor and then high populations of LGBTQ unhoused youth. Like, it's, there's just a direct connection. And I was, where was I? I? was performing in Salt Lake City a couple months ago before all of the current virus stuff. And my opener was somebody who was raised Mormon and was talking about his experience very positively. It was like, yeah, people have been pretty accepting. And then sort of like as a last thing before we you know said goodbye to each other, he was like, you know, that being said, like, I'm not allowed to talk about my life with my family, you know, <laughs> like, like, and I just think that, that even as queer folks, we sort of are, there's a, there's pressure being put on us to act like things are fine. You know, he's like, yeah, actually, like my experience has been pretty chill. And he's like, I mean, of course I can't tell anyone who I'm dating or like what my life is actually like, but like, it's been fine, <laughs> you know, you know, and it's like, it's no, it's not fine. None of this is fine. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, it's not my job to tell him that, but I can say just anecdotally, I still, I'm in, when I go out in the world and travel, I travel so much for my job. What I'm hearing from folks is that it is still not fine. <laughs> right. Like not even close to fine. Yes. <laughs> and yet some of us are still so, and this is not a critique, but some of us, because of the way we were raised, are still so mired in it. I mean, I know I'm still mired in it. Like, it's not something that you necessarily escape, but like... Wait, tell me what you mean. Mired in this kind of 
heteronormative performance, this sense of I have to be something else in order to be loved, accepted, wanted, which I mean, I know for me is, is a perpetual process of undoing that, right? It's, it's, a, it's not something that I can just turn off <laughs> within myself. Yes. And I, it's a spectrum. Some of us are further along than others, kind of saying to people who are back there being like, no, 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 like, come join us. And yet the process of joining means a, a, saying, of goodbye, a saying goodbye to everything we know in some ways. Well, I mean, I would even actually go further to say it actually means not us saying goodbye to everything we know, but everything we know often saying goodbye to us. You know, I mean, I, just regarding what you just said, I I know for a fact that one of my biggest fears and something that resurfaces for me all the time is abandonment. Like I really, I really have this sort of underlying, yeah, chill around abandonment. And it's, if I look at why that is, you know, when I came out, my family initially, not my siblings, but my parents initially, like, were not available for this information, were really upset and talking to me about hell. My faith, you know, the messaging that I got at my school was, like, absolutely, this is not something to be shared. Like, if this is what's happening for you, like, do not act on it. And like keep it inside and be ashamed of yourself. My school did not have, you know, there was no like counseling or LGBT center that I could go to and get any information. And then my friends, like I told, I told one friend, and that person didn't speak to me for the rest of that school year. Like I told her in around Easter time, and she didn't speak to me for several months until school was over. So then I t- didn't tell anyone else. So then I just had this experience of dating a person. I was dating my first girlfriend and speaking to no one about it, you know, really being dropped by everybody else in my life by something that I didn't mean to do, you know, like I didn't mean to be gay. I'm happy that I am. But that like chain reaction of, oh, I didn't even know, like, I can't even look at the moment where this started and suddenly everybody in my life is gone that, you know, I have so much fear around that now. Like, what's going to be the next thing where everybody responds that way? And even if that's not like a conscious thought, that's a underlying behavior and that I'll have like probably for the rest of my life. That, I mean, I think you're naming something that I don't know that I've named in my life before. Like that, (laughs) over here like, oh no. (laughs) Because it feels so true. That sense of of what, what will happen next yeah, what's the next thing? I didn't even mean to do this. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what's the next thing? So one line in your book that really stuck out to me, and, and you've touched on this a little bit, talking about how like being a stand-up comic is similar to being a priest or a pastor. You say, talking with people about what matters in the world is my whole thing. And, and I'm curious, like... You're a comic now, and and so much of your of your book feels like for me. Tell me whether you agree with this: is, is you learning how to take up space, you learning how to claim yourself, your fullness of who you are, and take up space and be that. How has comedy helped with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good reading. Um, <laughs> well, stand up is, I mean, especially. So I started in comedy doing improv, and improv is more the acting side of things you know you you inhabit a character and people are looking at you and you're making folks laugh and humor is a coping mechanism so you know whatever 
difference I felt at the time when I started doing improv, because I started in college around the same time that I was so tortured about being closeted, you know, that like sort of release mechanism was super helpful. And then when I made the transition into stand-up, stand-up is about speaking about your own experience in a one-to-one relationship, you know, from, from the I perspective. And I absolutely feel a lot of gratitude to my younger self for figuring out a way to survive, you know, like didn't have a space where I felt super safe, you know, didn't have a good relationship with my parents at the time that I started doing stand-up, didn't really feel comfortable in my gender or queerness yet. And so being on stage and like owning publicly that I was gay and talking about my life was massively important. I mean, it's funny because I look at it now and I am trying to make sure that I have conversations with friends like before I work everything out on stage or, you know, on the page. But at the time, that didn't feel possible. There wasn't really somebody to talk to. So I just talked to everybody. (laughs) You used the word liberation earlier in reference to like liberation theology, but like this sounds like a form of liberation. Yeah, absolutely. There's this comic, Maria Bamford, and years ago I opened for her, like, I don't even know when this would have been, maybe 10 years ago. And, you know, we still know each other, but it was, I think, the first time I ever met her. And she asked me, I think maybe just reflecting on her own life, like, I'm not sure why this is the question that she asked me, but she she was like, did you feel heard as a child? <laughs> I was literally like, yeah, of course, you know, like, um, and... I would like to go back and amend that answer just to say, like, I know there were times in my life that I didn't feel heard. And I wonder, I mean, that must be why, like, a straight cis white dude is doing stand-up. I mean, I guess. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not the same. I don't know. But for me, I think it, it really was about liberation. I also think it was just about normalization. I think it was about it's so risky to come out to one person because what if they have a negative reaction? But if you come out to like 300, 3,000, 30,000 people, you're going to get some positive reviews (laughs) 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 just by the nature of numbers. And I think some of it's that too. It's just like for some reason there was like a lower risk. What would you say your relationship to, to faith is now? Is it different? Yeah, I mean, I do not have a relationship to faith. It doesn't mean I don't have a relationship to spirituality, but I don't have a relationship to... When I think of faith, I think of that being... Maybe I'm just getting stuck on the word, actually, because I do think I have faith that there is that there are things bigger than me, even if it's just the group mind. You know, I don't think I'm the most powerful being in the universe. <laughs> I, I think there are I think that as a collective we're more powerful than I am as an individual. But I would say for some reason faith to me is like that's such a Catholic word. Um that when I hear that I that makes me like it trips me up and I think about organized religion. And so I will say spirituality and faith, I am relearning how to have a connection there at this point in my life. Organized religion is really blown up for me like that that will never be it again i don't i mean we don't know the future but i doubt that that will be it again so for for folks who are listening who are kind of 
kind of working through some of these things that you have, you're a little bit further along the path on, what would you say to those folks who are, who are kind of wrestling with these big questions or noticing the hypocrisy of the systems, um, who are trying to, to find those spaces that are maybe a little bit safer than where they are now? That is such a good question. I mean, here's the thing. All systems have hypocrisy and flaws because we are people. Like we are not <laughs> we are not perfect. I think that what I try to seek out are communities with accountability. So like the queer community, for instance, the, at least the part of the queer community that I'm invested in, you know, is a community that includes folks with diversity on so many spectrums, you know, and that also like does some self-investigation about where people are left out or how things can be improved. And that feels really appealing to me. I also think that can be true sometimes of comedy, you know, sometimes comedy is doing some self-examination. I really like that when I see that. I don't think that's always true. So I do feel like I have that a little bit in my job. I think, you know, the city of Los Angeles is a, a pretty progressive city that sometimes is doing some self-examination. My friend groups are doing a lot of self-examination. So I just look for that, you know, and that really is what like was end game with me for the church is that like, it's not that it is a corporation because like, so are, you know, many things that I currently subscribe to like for instance i have an iphone you know like, like um but i think it's that it's you know it's a corporation that shirks responsibility and then also proclaims to have so much to teach so i just really look for institutions and people who are doing the work i guess well, what's your favorite way for people to find your work and, and how can people get your book well what's really awesome is that my book save yourself is you can get it like everywhere well at least in the united states i know i've i've heard from some like international folks and i am so sorry but this is the weirdest time ever and so i actually don't have a great handle on what's going on internationally because it i'm in less close communication with the folks that i usually work with i mean that i work with than i usually would be um but in the u.s you know you can get it on amazon or audible as a as an e or as an audiobook or you can get it like on Apple Books as an ebook, but what I'm recommending most of all is trying to support indie booksellers right now because many are still shipping even if they're not open. So they have communication with their warehouses or they have staff that are shipping books out. And this is just like one little thing we can do to maintain the infrastructure in our communities is buy books right now because there isn't to my knowledge, it is not putting like undue stress on the shipping world. It's just keeping small businesses open. So, you know, if you live in a community where there is a local bookshop, and you definitely do, you can do some Googles around, buy it through there or buy other books if you've hated this conversation. <laughs> uh, because that's something that we can all do to keep at least one type of local business afloat. And then in terms of where you can find me, I'm just Cameron Esposito across socials. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been lovely. Yeah, it was a really nice conversation. And please, you know, continue to take such good care of yourself and uh, have a something kind of day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can find Cameron across the internet at Cameron Esposito. Be sure to go grab a copy of her new book, Save Yourself, wherever you buy books. And 
I, I really like that local bookstore idea. So do that. <laughs> Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is produced directly with support from you. To find out how you can help keep Queerology on the air, head to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to support Queerology is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next time, y'all. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 